you know, people aren't gleefully uh, trying to avoid paying their property taxes and, and, and figuring, well, the government will just sell it and give me the profits back. I mean, that's not really a realistic scenario. People who, who are unable to pay are unable to pay. And for the government to profit off of that, it's, it, you know, in some cases, it's like a, a poverty tax. And I think everybody sort of sees the inherent injustice of, of taking more than you're owed. In a busy term for the United States Supreme Court that includes high-profile cases which could end affirmative action in American universities and drastically limit the scope of federal government regulators, a case argued last Wednesday may have escaped quite a lot of people's attention. Tyler versus Hennepin County is a case brought by Geraldine Tyler, a 94-year-old woman from Minneapolis in the state of Minnesota who had her home seized and sold off in 2015 after falling $15,000 behind in property taxes owed to the local government. She argued that the seizure of her property violated her 5th, 8th and 14th Amendment rights under the US Constitution, and we will find out later this year whether America's highest court agrees. So what does this all mean? In the United States, the land of the free, can the government really just steal your house? Why have individuals and organisations across the political spectrum rallied in support of Ms Tyler? And what impact could the ruling have on broad protections for property rights under the Constitution going forward? I'm Harrison Griffiths. I'm Communications Officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And joining me to discuss this is David Dearson, an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation who has been part of arguing this case. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So just to start off with, can you lay out in a bit more detail exactly what the facts of this case are? Uh, certainly. Uh, and, and I think you did a good job summarizing them at the top. Geraldine Tyler, um, she's 94 years old. She's a grandmother. Uh, and since 1999, she had owned a condo in Minneapolis. Um, her neighborhood began to uh, deteriorate and become uh, somewhat of a dangerous place for her. And after a, after a frightening altercation with a neighbor, um, she gave in to her family's uh, urgings and decided to move to an assisted living facility in a nearby town. Um, but around this time, she began to fall behind on property taxes on the condo. And you said that, uh, you know, she she owed the government fifteen thousand dollars. That's true. But her principal tax debt was only twenty three hundred. Uh, and actually, the the extra um uh the extra 1270 or, or or whatever it is 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 added on by um by penalties interests and fees that the government tax on so they say that she owes the, that she owes them in total 15000 uh they foreclose the condo they sell it for $40000 and they keep all of the profit all of that $25000 that was left over and unfortunately that's the way that the tax foreclosure laws are written in Minnesota. It's the way that they're written in about a dozen states, um, plus Washington, D.C. Um, and like you said, we're hoping that the court will um, will put an end to this practice. Uh, we expect a decision sometime in June. OK, and you've alleged that this constitutes, I mean, you're, the main thrust of your argument, at least, you allege that this constitutes a violation of her rights under the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. So can you outline what that argument is and what exactly the takings clause is and how it applies to this case? Certainly. So the Fifth Amendment says that uh, the government can't take private property for public use 
without paying just compensation. Uh, and in our view, um, and in, in the better view, I would, I would posit, you have a property right um, in the equity value of your home. And the equity value, right, is the, is the fair market value of your home minus any encumbering debts. Uh, and that value is actually a, a property interest that's protected by the Constitution, and it's one that the government can't take from you without paying you back for it. Of course, uh, we're not challenging the government's authority to um, seize homes and sell them in order to recover tax debts, uh, but there's nothing that gives them the authority to take more than they're owed, uh, and that the, the Constitution uh, does, not, does not permit that. And there is a, a little bit more to your argument as well, isn't there? So uh, if if the court sides with you on the Fifth Amendment question, then the following questions are moot. They, they, they don't matter. They're no longer right. Um, but you also allege that her rights under the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines and her Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment rights to substantive due process have been violated. Do you mind explaining that a little bit more as well? Because, sure. you know, I mean, it looks to me like there's quite a whole host of her constitutional rights that have been violated in this case. Sure. Um, yeah, the, eight, the Eighth Amendment uh, claim is, is somewhat of, of an alternative claim in case, um, you know, in case the courts uh, didn't agree that it was a taking, uh, well, if it's not a taking, it looks a lot like an Eighth Amendment violation. Now, many people might uh, probably know the Eighth Amendment for its prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, uh, which is such a salient phrase, but it also prohibits excessive fines. And so to the extent that uh, you can characterize the retention of all of this surplus value uh, as a sort of um, a, a punitive consequence, of failing to keep up with your taxes, then it looks a whole lot like an excessive fine. Now, the issue with the, the 14th Amendment and, and due process, for the most part, all that's happening there really is that um, because this, you know, these actions were taken by Hennepin County, Hennepin County is a municipal corporation of the state of Minnesota. And, you know, originally the, the Bill of Rights uh, in the United States, things like the Fifth and Eighth Amendments, didn't apply to the states. Uh, they only do apply to the states now by operation of the 14th Amendment. So that's really the extent of the 14th Amendment's role in the case is just that that is the avenue by which um, the, the other provisions in the Bill of Rights get applied against the states yes. as opposed to the federal government. Yeah, so you're just restating the very long precedent that the 14th Amendment combined with the Fifth Amendment uh, incorporates uh, rights against the states as well right, as the exactly. federal government, which I think is a product of post-Civil War amendments, right? That's exactly right. Okay, so uh, when you talk about the takings clause and you look at the plain text of it, it might seem to a, a layman like me that you've got a pretty good case here, but the Supreme Court, uh, plenty of people argue, particularly uh, legal scholars and voices on the libertarian side, uh, does not interpret the Fifth Amendment as broadly, perhaps, as it was originally conceived. How has uh, the Supreme Court's understanding of the Fifth Amendment changed over time? Uh, and why do you think that this particular case is particularly strong, even given those changes? Well, I think that when you're hearing people on the uh, libertarian side criticizing the court's 
treatment of the takings clause. I think it largely has to do with a pretty tricky issue about regulatory takings um, rather than sort of direct physical takings, which are at issue in this case. So, you know, in a regulatory taking, um, it, rather than be being upfront and straightforward that they're going to appropriate your property, um, you know, they the government can by roundabout ways accomplish the same ends without actually physically taking your property. So just as an example, um, you know, in, in scenario A, the government wants your property to be used as conservation land for a wildlife reserve. So in scenario A, they bring an eminent domain action, they take the land from you, uh, and they pay you for it. In scenario B, uh, let's say they don't want to have to pay for that. So they say, well, we're not taking the land. All we're going to do is <clears throat> pass a regulation that says, you know, any land that looks like this land uh, has to be used as conservation area for, for a wildlife preserve. Uh, you know, in effect, that's accomplishing the same thing, although they're trying to get away with it um, without paying for it. That's not really uh, a, an issue here. And it's, you know, there's... It, it's it's a, it's been a challenge for the court to determine when exactly a regulation crosses the line into totally appropriating property. Um, so so that can sometimes be a thorny issue. But this case should be much simpler because in reality it looks a lot more like a physical direct appropriation. They're literally transferring the title to your property into the government's own name. Um, and they're they're uh, retaining all of the the proceeds from the sale thereof. So you you no longer possess the property as opposed to a regulatory taking where you're still in possession. So it should be a much easier case. Now I think one um, possible uh, thorn when it comes to tax foreclosures is that is that it's well known that you know the taxing power is different from the eminent domain power. And of course, if you read that line of the Fifth Amendment, literally, they can't take property. Uh, and if you know that, that the Fifth Amendment has been applied to all kinds of property, including cash, um, then you could say, well, how, how can they even levy and collect taxes? Because isn't that taking cash, which is property? Um, and so to the extent that um, you know, there's anything about um, Fifth Amendment takings jurisprudence that that might pose an obstacle in a case like this. It it may be that confusion between the the tax power and the eminent domain power. To be honest, I don't think that's a very big obstacle. Um, it, I mean, it hasn't come up in this case. It hasn't come up in in most of our cases. It's sort of theoretically um, out there, but uh, you know, because we don't challenge the authority of government to. Uh, seize properties to collect taxes. The issue is the retention of the equity value at the end. Um, there hasn't, in practice, been much confusion between you know what's a tax and and what's a taking. Uh, everybody agrees. Uh, we, we don't even challenge the the uh, thirteen hundred dollars in, in interest penalties and fees that they imposed. Um, you know, everybody agrees that they had the right to take uh, that much, but we say no more. And, and one particular thorny issue that I think a lot of people uh, on the libertarian liberal side will think when it comes to economics um, is the issue of determining exactly what the value, the fair value of the home is. And I believe that Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who's a Republican appointee, and Justice Elena Kagan, who was appointed by Barack Obama, both brought up this issue. 
Um, how exactly are you supposed to determine the fair value of a home? Is it merely that the government put it to auction and it got auctioned, or is there something more to it than that? So certainly the auction price uh, is very likely going to be, um, you know, an excellent data point and, and, and probably your best data point. Um, and of course, it has to be, uh, you know, we have to be careful and, and, and watchful of the auctions because a lot of times we find that the auctions are not well run, um, that there's some sort of insider or self-dealing going on. But assuming that, um, you know, the auctions are, are fully fair and fully competitive, then the auction price is going to be a very strong indicator of the fair market value. But I don't think that it should be um, conclusive. And the you know the concerns about how to find out what the value is I, I think fall a little flat because we do this in Fifth Amendment litigation all the time. Um, all the time we argue that um, either the, the government admits that it's taken a property or it it doesn't admit that it's taken it and that has to be uh, litigated. but in either case, where you end up is in a valuation trial. And you know both sides pre present their evidence and their appraisals of how much the property was worth, uh, and the court you know the court makes a decision um, about the value of the property. And uh, you know we 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 do this sort of thing all the time. So I don't think it should be difficult to determine what the what the value of the property is. In a lot of states, they have um, they have a requirement. You know, a lot of states that don't do this, where they do uh, pay you back. Um, at the end, they have a requirement that this that the government get one or two independent appraisers um, to actually determine the value of the property before a tax foreclosure goes forward in the first place. And in some states, if the if the appraisers determine that the value of property is vastly out of proportion with the tax debts owed, uh, then they won't foreclose in the first place. That's how that's that's how an, you know a government should treat its citizens is. You know, if the deal just doesn't make sense, if it would be unconscionable to foreclose the home for taxes, why do it in the first place? Um, but but again, you know, a state like Minnesota could have the county um, uh, use appraisers to determine the value of the property. You could have a system where property owners could choose to uh, agree to that appraisal if they can't afford, you know, getting their own, if they don't want to go through the process of an expensive valuation trial, um, they can submit to the appraisals of the government or they can challenge them. And I don't think it should be hard because, like I said, it, it happens all the time in America. Yeah. And, and to, to move on to the other sort of main argument that you are making, your stop, as it were, if the court decides this is not, in fact, taking by some leap of logic that only the Supreme Court is capable of. Um, the Eighth Amendment is also a quite broad and perhaps over vague um, piece of law that has, according to many critics, been unduly narrowed in terms of its scope by the court. Uh, but it's fair to say that terms like cruel and unusual punishment, excessive fines, excessive bail are very much open to judicial interpretation. And uh, if you don't agree with the idea that you know it should just be up to the vibes that a judge feels um, and needs some kind of limiting principle, like uh, I think Justice Scalia's limiting principle, as often was his limiting principles, was what did they, what did they, the framers, right. the writers mean at the time by excessive and cruel and unusual. Um, but it is, it is an amendment that is quite wide in terms of its, its scope of its text, but quite narrow in terms of the way the court has interpreted it. 
Uh, is this uh, the case you're making under the Eighth Amendment uh, out of line with the current jurisprudence on it? Is it appealing to a wider definition than courts have employed in recent years? Um, or as you argue with the Fifth Amendment's takings clause, is it perfectly compatible regardless of the broader questions of interpretation? Um, sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll start with, um, you know, in this case, procedurally, it was dismissed at the District of Minnesota before we could really argue the Eighth Amendment question. And the effect of that is that the question for the Supreme Court is not whether um, there was a fine which was excessive. The question is limited to whether there was a fine at all within the meaning of the Eighth Amendment. So the court's not going to be able to get to that second question. It may decide whether this was a fine to which the Eighth Amendment applies, but the question whether that fine was you know, constitutionally or unconstitutionally excessive um, is, not, is not really before the court. Um, where the you know, the, the government argues that uh, that the excessive fines clause doesn't have uh, an application here because this is not a criminal proceeding. It's not a crime to fail to pay your taxes. And usually we think of excessive fines as a punishment. And usually we think of punishment in the context uh, of crime. But the 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 truth is, first of all, it's almost intuitively backwards to say that, well, somebody who's who's committed a crime should have more protection from excessive fines than somebody who's innocent of a crime. I mean, that just doesn't sort of make any intuitive sense why yeah. it would apply only in one situation and not to somebody who's perfectly innocent. Uh, but the other thing is this, this crime non-crime distinction is, is beside the point and a bit of a red herring because what the jurisprudence really says is the distinction is whether it's punitive or not, whether it's punitive or merely remedial. And the, the, the court over the decades, I mean, it hasn't done a, an extremely clear job. I think the Eighth Amendment is an area where, um, where there's, a, there's much yet to be established. But, um, but the, the real distinction that's been focused on is not between criminal and non-criminal, but between punitive and non-punitive. And they've laid out uh, you know, factors that, that, that tell you whether it's punitive or not. By the way, again, the distinction is not even whether it's primarily punitive or primarily remedial, but if it's at least partly punitive, if there's some significant punitive value in the government's actions, then it should be considered a fine under the Eighth Amendment. And one of the things, one of the uh, the indicators of when a fine is punitive is when it's used for deterrence purposes. And in this case, the Hennepin County conceded as much uh, in the courts below. They, they themselves described it uh, as something as necessary to, you know, deter people from from failing to pay their taxes, to basically scare them into paying up. Otherwise, they could lose their entire home and all their savings. We think that, you know, that deterrent effect and that deterrent intent alone um, puts puts this within the Eighth Amendment. And just on the simple face of it, it seems like what the whole contention of this case, the surplus equity that was taken by the government just it it's very difficult to make an argument that that's purely remedial if they had just taken the amount they alleged she owed then maybe fair exactly enough. But if, exactly but and you also and you also have the um you know the the thirteen hundred dollars in fines and fees that they tacked on and interest that they tacked on to a twenty three hundred dollar debt so that already looks like they're you know remediating the problem of having failed to pay taxes and of course the fact that 
you know, in this case, if we're thinking about it as a fine, the fine is um, completely, the extent of the fine is totally arbitrary with, with respect to the extent of the violation, it, you know, because no matter how much your tax debt was, uh, the extent of the fine is going to depend on the value of your home. And, and uh, that's sort of arbitrary. It's going to be different in every case. And so that also looks less like, um, you know, something that's discreetly needed for remediating some harm to the government and more like just an arbitrary um, punishment meant to deter uh, or meant otherwise to punish. Uh, and uh, the, the press that I've read around it, at the very least, uh, really emphasizes the fact that people across a, a wide variety of political persuasions have got behind this case. Uh, but more importantly for, for you guys, I suppose, uh, that it seems like every justice is up for grabs. This isn't like one of those selection, small, very, well, um, actually quite small uh, number of cases that the courts are divided, you know, six to three, five to four along ideological lines. Uh, why do you think this is? Um, and do you buy this idea that you could potentially be in for a 9-0 a or an 8-1 uh, when the decision comes around? Well, certainly anything's possible. And I think if you uh, listen to the argument, uh, that's more than plausible. I think the justices did seem um, very receptive to our position and very skeptical of the opposing position. Of course, we can't make any uh, guarantees or, or predictions, but we're we're certainly feeling optimistic. Um, I think, you know, the easiest answer is everybody hears this on a gut level, they get it. I mean, the justice of the issue here is is not hard to see. It doesn't take a lawyer, it doesn't take a Supreme Court justice um, to understand what's unfair about taking more than you're owed. And especially what's unfair about the government profiting off of the misfortunes of its citizens. Of course, the people who are struggling to keep up on their property taxes, uh, you know, they're already down and out. Uh, they they may have lost their job, be on a fixed income. They they're often elderly um, or ill or experiencing illness or death in the family. And so, you know, people aren't gleefully. Uh, trying to avoid paying their property taxes and 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 figuring, well, the government will just sell it and give me the profits back. I mean, that's not really a realistic scenario. People who who are unable to pay are unable to pay, and for the government to profit off of that, it's it, you know, in some cases, it's like a, a poverty tax. And I think everybody sort of sees the inherent injustice of of taking more than you're owed. You know, when I when we first started looking into this issue at Pacific Legal Foundation about five years ago, and I was telling friends of mine and family about the work I was doing, one common reaction, um, you know, a bit insultingly, uh, but understandably was that I must, I must be misunderstanding, uh, that there's no way that that's really how it works, that you must have misread the statute, you know, something must have happened in this case. Uh, there's no way that that uh, that local governments in America just steal all of the equity value in your home when you owe them money. Uh, and so that 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 disbelief, I think, remains even when you're you know you're shown the statute, you're shown the cases, you're shown um, the case of Uri Raffaelli in in Oakland County, Michigan, who owed. $8 and 41 cents and they sold his home for $25,000 and kept everything. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a case where as lawyers say, good facts make good law. Um, 
it, you know, it's just the obvious injustice, I think, brings everybody on board. Second thing is with this court in particular, of course, they're um, they're especially open to taking a second look at the, the court's historical treatment of of property rights. It's a it's a property friendly court. Um, but not all nine of the justices are that way, you know, as, as, as you point out. So I think probably the, the biggest thing going here is just the intuitive sense of injustice that, that this practice raises. Um, Justice Kagan put it well when she said, you know, uh, they were asking a hypothetical question to, to test how far the government would really go to defend this practice. And they asked whether a, a $5 million home could be sold for a $5,000 tax debt and all of the surplus retained. Uh, and, and the county's hired attorney said that, yes, they could. And Justice Kagan says, the mind rebels at that thought. The mind rebels. And I think that's true. Absolutely. And, and that disbelief is what really led me to properly look into this and to uh, invite someone from the PF on to talk about it, because as a, a sort of free market liberal organization, we are constantly banging on about the injustice or bad outcomes of what happens when the government takes something from its citizenry. But this was just an open and shut case of the government stole an old woman's house. That's right. And, and, and as you I say, just couldn't believe it. Surely there was something else at play here, but it really is mostly that simple, it seems. Yeah, well, she owed them money, I guess, is is the other thing at play. Of course, when you owe a private party money, right, when you when you have a mortgage with the bank, they can't do this kind of thing. It's only the government that, that says it gets to play by uh, to play by different rules. Mm. And the mafia, in fact. She owe, I mean, you owe me money. It's right. exactly the same thing. Uh, the final thing I wanted to ask is that in political discussions um, and particularly in high profile Supreme Court cases with serious wider implications, it's easy to forget that there is a human being that often lines behind these cases. Uh, Geraldine Tyre, I believe, is now 94 years old. Uh, and it's incredible that she has been fighting for this for eight years. It can't be easy. Do you know how she is getting on and whether she's been able to move on with her life since? Um, or does it remain challenging? Uh, well, Geraldine is, is a very sweet woman. She's been very, um, you know, uh, gracious and kind uh, with us. Um, I think I think there are challenges in her life as there are challenges in the life of, uh, uh, you know, of anybody. I think she has a, a good family that that helps to take care of her. You know, from her perspective, uh, we asked her once early in the process, uh, you know, what would it mean for you if you got this this money back? And, you know, at minimum, we're talking about twenty five thousand dollars. And she said, gosh, well, I don't have to spend it all at one time, do I? We said, no, of course not. She said, well, the first thing I really like is a new mattress. So, you know, we're, she's talking about getting a twenty five thousand dollar award from, a, you know, potentially from the United States Supreme Court. And, you know, she she just wants to make sure that she can get a better mattress for herself. So. Uh, you know, I think she's a she's a, a strong, sweet, and humble woman, and uh, we're we're very uh, we're very honored to be uh, representing her. Yeah, well, I wish you and of course her the best of luck, David Dearson. Thank you very much for joining me. That is all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this video. If you did, please give it a like and feel free to subscribe to the IA London YouTube channel. I'm eager to get your thoughts. Is this case as I seem to think it is just an egregious example of open and shut government theft or 
maybe do you think there is more to it? Leave a comment below. Finally, thank you all very much for watching.